All right, friends, hey, while they receive the offering, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. Sorry about that. Let's do this together. Let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 is where we're going to be. Luke 22. If you did not bring a Bible, maybe you left your Bible home or you left it in the car, there's a blue Bible underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can just reach down and pull that out. Uh, Luke 22 in that Bible is on page 976. 976, Luke chapter 22. Um, And we're going to pick it up in verse 7 this morning. Luke 22, verse 7. We are continuing in our series called The Church of Jesus Christ. And kind of every single week we have kind of jokingly said, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. We're just, we're just opening the Bible and saying, hey, what is the church? What is the church? Uh, the church is something that's been around for 2,000 years. What created the church? What is the church? What is the church supposed to do? How is the church supposed to act? What's the church supposed to look like? We've been wrestling through these questions over the past six weeks now at Flourishing Grace. We've got a couple weeks left. Um, and this morning we're going to ask the question, what are the ordinances and sacraments of the church? That might be strange to some of you. Um, And I'll explain that in in a minute, uh, what we mean by that. But first, we're going to read our text for this morning from Luke 22. Here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the Word of God. It holds a unique authority over our lives. And so if you're able, would you stand with me as I read it for us this morning? I'll read it for us from Luke 22. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, which is creepy, I know. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he has told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I will tell you. I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which has been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten it, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. All right. What are the ordinances and sacraments of the church? Well, let me say this. That's, that's, that's old language, right? Ordinances and sacraments is... Uh, sacraments in particular is not a language that we see a lot, that we hear a lot of. That's, those, those are old words. And so for some of us, we might even be like, what does that even mean? What is an ordinance? What is a sacrament? Some, some of you might have grown up in a church where you recognize ordinances and sacraments. Uh, some of you uh, might have uh, different views and different opinions on this. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the Bible and say, okay, what are the ordinances and sacraments according to the Word of God? Um, and how do those play out in the life of the church? Uh, 
what are ordinances and sacraments? Well, an ordinance is a pretty simple one, right? Because there's still ordinances today, right? If you own a house, um, whether it's here in Bountiful or North Salt Lake or Woods Cross or Farmington, wherever you might own a house, you have ordinances, right? You have these civil rules that you must uh, adhere to as someone who chooses to live within that community, right? There's town or city ordinances for a community of people, right? Together collectively, we are submitting ourselves to this, this rule or this order, right? This ordinance, um, which is for a group of people. Yes, as individuals, we follow it, but it's for a group of people. So likewise, in, in ordinance, whereas a command within the Word of God would be for me as an individual, for you as an individual, an ordinance is for us collectively as the church, right? All of us together, the local church, we'd say, okay, these are the orders that are found within Scripture that the church is to obey, things that the church is to do, okay? Well, what are those? We'll get into that in a minute. Sacraments are a little bit different, right? Sacrament comes from uh, the, the Latin sacrum, which just means sacred, right? So these are sacred things. Well, that, well, that doesn't help us much. What does that mean? What are, what are the sacred things uh, within the Bible? Well, um, sacraments are, uh, is an ability, to, uh, these things that we do that may give us the ability to see a sacred thing. Okay, we can see it. We can taste it, we can touch it, we can feel this sacred thing. We can see the gospel. Uh, Augustine, the great theologian in 300, said that a sacrament is a visible sign of a sacred thing. The Council of Trent in the mid-16th century said uh, that a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace. Right? Grace is invisible. You can't, you can't see it. You can't taste it. You can't touch it. It's an invisible thing. Right? The grace of Jesus is not something that you can visibly touch or see or taste, right? A sacrament is something that makes that grace visible. It makes that grace something we can see. It contains and displays the gospel. It's the gospel on display, okay? So in the Word of God, we see a number of things that contain and display the gospel. Some of these things are ordinances for the whole church, okay? Ordinances in sacraments. Now, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, uh, you might have had different ordinances and different sacraments, right? So uh, the Church of Rome established, so if you go back past 500 years ago, so if, let's just say 1,000 years ago, there was only one church in the entire known world, right? In, in the Roman Empire, there was the Church of Rome. And as the earth progressed, that, that church con controlled all Christian community. Okay? There was only one church. If you wanted to go to church, there was only one church in your town. Or if there was two churches in town, they were both the same. Okay? There might have been a high church for those who were of noble fare, and then the, the regular church for, for regular old people. But there was still the Church of Rome, controlled by the Church of Rome. Okay? And so Church of Rome said that there are seven sacraments. Seven sacraments. So you had uh, baptism, the Eucharist. You had, uh, the, you, you had confession, you had marriage, you had uh, priest, uh, the, the ordination of a priest, you had uh, last rites, and you had um, confirmation. Confirmation, thank you. Uh, you, you, had these seven, you had these seven sacraments of the church. Now, we would say, since the Protestant Reformation, right, the, the Reformation comes along 500 years ago, and they would say, well, hang on, hold up, hold up. So, so while marriage might contain and display the gospel, right, when Paul says to 
husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, and wives are supposed to love their husbands as the church is this representation of how the church loves Christ. We see this picture of the gospel in marriage. Is that for the whole church? Is it, is it an ordinance? Or is it for the individual couple? Well, we would argue that's for the individual couple. It's, it's not a church ordinance or church sacrament. It's, it, it's for the couple. It's a beautiful thing, and it is, it is a sacred thing. But it's not a church ordinance or a sacrament. Most of those things, in fact, are not. Are not. You might have grown up in, in, a, in a different denomination. Some, some churches would say foot washing is an ordinance and a sacrament, a sacrament of the church. My wife would strongly disagree. She hates feet. She'd be like, I'm out. I knew that. I don't care. I would, she wouldn't have even married me if I'd have believed that. She'd be like, nah, I knew that. It's crazy. She hates feet. Some say women's head coverings are a sacrament of the church. Clearly here we don't believe that. Um, over time, these things from, from the scriptures, that mean these are the sacraments that, that contain and display the gospel. However, since the Reformation, there's really been two predominant things that we, as we look at scripture, we'd say, man, these are the, clearly the things that the church has been commanded to do that contain and display the gospel. And so here at Flourishing Grace, we'd say that there's only two ordinances, there's only two sacraments. Only two ordinances and only two sacraments, and they're the same, right? Two ordinances, two sacraments, both the same thing. Um, and that's baptism and communion. There are no saving ordinances, okay? Let, let me just be clear on that. These things do not save you. O only the work of Christ on the cross saves. There's nothing that we do that saves us. There's no such thing as a, as a saving command where it's like, man, if you don't do this, you're not, you're not saved. No, no, our faith in Christ alone, by his grace, he calls us. That saves the spirit residing in us, given to us by Christ through the work on the cross. That saves alone. No, nothing that we do saves us. Christ saves us alone. Him alone. However, these sacraments and ordinances are gifts from God to his church that contain and display the beauty of the gospel for, his, for our good and for his glory. And so they are sacred and they are important. Now, this sermon originally was going to be both on baptism and on communion. And as I begin to write it, I realize there's no way we're fitting it all in in one sermon. And so we'll come back and we'll hit baptism later. But let me just kind of say this on baptism. We've preached on it before. We'll preach on it again. Uh, we've never preached on communion before. That's why we're going to camp out on communion a little bit more this morning. Let me say this real quick about baptism. It is an ordinance, okay? Um, it is something that we've been commanded to do by Christ, to believe and be baptized, uh, to go and make disciples and baptize them. It's something the church, collectively, we have been called to, to do, to engage in as a community. It is an ordinance for the church, not for the individual. It is something that the individual does, but it's something that the church does to them, okay? The baptism is, uh, is, is the marking off of one, saying this person, we collectively, as the church, we agree this person is a follower of Jesus. This is why we don't, we don't do private baptism, right? Um, in someone's home, in, in their bathtub, or, or like baptizing your cousin in the, in the swimming pool, or your, your kid in, in the bathtub. Like we, don't, we don't do that, right? It's an ordinance of the church. We do it when we gather together collectively. That's how, that's how we see baptism, as an ordinance of the church, not as, a, as a, of an individual, right? While we are commanded to be baptized, the church is commanded to baptize. And so the, the act of baptizing is, is an ordinance of the whole church. Um, now, is it, is it sinful or wrong 
to have a private baptism. Um, I, would, I would not say it's sinful. In fact, I would say sometimes it's, it's right. It's okay. Um, I have a friend who is an army chaplain, special forces army chaplain, one of the first ever army chaplains to be in the special forces. And when he is in the field of battle and someone gives their life to Christ, he baptizes them right then and there. Right? There, if there's water available in some way, shape, or form, right? he says, man, the means and the modes, it just does not matter. We're going to be faithful to the Word of God. Right? The church is not available right, in, in the field of battle. And so he, but he, he goes ahead and performs it anyway. I would say if the church is available, that is the way it should be done. Um, it's also a sacrament that contains and displays the gospel in multiple ways, actually, right? When we talk about baptism, we, we talk about this idea of going underwater. There's, this, there's death there. It's, it's dark. If you, if you stay there, I promise you, you will not survive, right? You can't breathe underwater. So if you stay there, that's, it's death. But then we're being brought up into new life as Christ, his work on the cross, right? It's death to the old self, and we're raised to new life with Christ because of his work on the cross. Not because of baptism, because of Christ's work on the cross. In the same way, it represents this cleansing, being washed by the blood of Christ on the cross, being washed by the sacrifice of Christ. Our sins are cleansed and washed. The water doesn't wash us. In fact, we're probably more dirty than when we actually got into the water. Um, but Christ has washed us. So we see this ordinance and we see the sacrament that is for the church in baptism. We see the same thing in communion. You might have grown up uh, in a church that talked about communion as uh, maybe different language. Maybe it was the Mass or the Eucharist or the Lord's Table, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, communion, right? Ever since the Reformation, the Protestants have kind of talked about it and that, used that language of communion, communion. Um, Communion is, is, we find in this passage that we read this morning, this passage from Luke, and it's found in other Gospels as well. This moment where Jesus says, man, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what is he doing? What is Jesus doing that, that night with his disciples, that night that he's betrayed? What is happening there? Well, we see in Luke's account that they're having a Passover meal. This would have been, this would have been a common thing in first century Israel for, for Jewish families, Jewish men and women to, to partake in this Passover meal um, in, that would, would be known as the, the Seder meal. Right? This, this is the Seder. Right? For those of you who are unfamiliar with what a Seder is, a Seder um, is a meal, but it's not like a normal meal where you just kind of like eat a bunch of food and that's that. Um, there's, there's a purpose and an intent behind every element of the meal. All the way through, someone is leading this experience. It's more of an experience than a meal. And someone's leading this experience, and, and the whole thing is meant to teach you. Every element, every bit of food, every prayer is meant to teach the, the, the Israelite or the Jewish person uh, about the exodus out of slavery in Egypt, right? And in, in the, uh, when, when the plagues come and when the Jews are enslaved in Egypt, right, the final, the final straw is the Passover, where they paint, uh, they, they sacrifice, and they paint the, 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 the blood over the doorposts, and God passes over their homes and, and kills the firstborn male of every, of every uh, e uh, Egyptian family, right? It's, it's, this, it's this reminder that God has, has led us out of slavery and brought us into the promised land. And so every element of the meal teaches that. And that's what Jesus is doing. And there's a part of this meal where you have three stacks of unleavened bread, or a, st a stack of three pieces of bread, okay? You have a stack of three pieces of bread. 
And, and what the person who's leading this meal will do is they remove the middle piece of that bread. They remove the middle piece, and they break it. They put part of that piece back into the middle. They take the other piece, and they wrap it in, in a cloth, a napkin. Nowadays, it's more fancy. They got like a little bag. They put it in with a drawstring, and, and they hide it. They hide it someplace in the house. And the kids who are present will go look for this piece of bread. They go, they go searching throughout the house. They're looking all over the, for the place for this piece of bread. Meanwhile, the adults are back in the room, and they're going through the rest of the meal together, piece by piece, part by part, observing this, this meal together. And eventually, the kid finds it, and they bring it back. And they're like, I found it, I found it. Everybody celebrates, and there's a party, and the kid gets a prize. Maybe it's a toy, maybe it's a couple bucks, right? Uh, the kid gets a prize, and that, that piece is the last piece. That's the dessert. That little half piece of bread is, is the dessert. And Jesus takes that piece of bread and says, this, this is me. This is my body. And it's meant, it's meant to be taken with the wine, right? The wine, it's joy, it's celebration, it's the promised land. Let's celebrate. we got the dessert, we got the wine, it's a party. He says, this is me. I'm the party. What Jesus does for his disciples that night, he says, he says look, man, these three pieces of bread, one, two, three, the middle one, that's me. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. We remove the Son, but we break it. We put part of it back, because you can't remove me from who I actually am. I, I am the God of all things. I, I am fully God, and yet I'm something else too. I'm fully man. And we, it wraps it in the napkin or the cloth, and it's hidden. He's dead, he's gone, he's disappeared. And, but then he's brought forth in a new life. He says, this is me. This is my body. It's been broken for you. It's been, it's been sacrificed for you. We have this unbelievable picture. And his, his disciples that night, these, these men who grew up as little Jewish boys in their, in their homes, chasing and pursuing this little piece of bread, trying, trying to find it in the house. They're, in this moment, they're like, oh my, this is it. This unbelievable picture of the gospel for so long, it's been pointing us backwards, but it's also been pointing us forwards to what the Messiah was going to be like. And what he was going to do, it's all wrapped up in this meal. This is unbelievably beautiful, this picture of the gospel and who Christ was going to be. Now, shortly after the Reformation, in the early 1500s, 1550, the Queen of England, who is... subject to the Church of Rome, burns 288 men, women, and children alive because of their opinion and their view of this meal. 280 pe people are recorded on record as being burned alive. Men, women, and children, children burned alive because they disagree with the Church of Rome on what this meal was and how it was to be viewed and seen and taken. How, how, how do we go from this beautiful picture of this, of this Seder meal, Jesus teaching his followers who he is and how this represents him to this unbelievable, gross and disgusting act, this unchrist-like act over a meal that's meant to point us to Christ. You see, in order to understand communion, we have to understand the history of it. We have to understand the picture and the intent and where, where the church has taken this thing. There's several different views that have been taken throughout history. First, you have the Church of Rome. 
Their, their view was, was a view of what, what they call transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. They say there's a transformation that takes place right here. In the Church of Rome, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a nice table, in, an altar, right? An altar where the elements are brought out and placed on the altar. And the priest, when the priest blesses those elements, it's, an, it's a sacrificial altar. There's a re-sacrificing that is happening. The elements, according to the Church of Rome, actually transform. They transform into the literal body and literal blood of Christ. They're no longer bread and wine or bread and juice. They are body and blood of Christ. And we consume those elements. We consume this body. We consume his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. There's a re-sacrificing happening on the altar within the church of Rome. To this day, that's how it's believed to be. Well, along come the reformers. Probably the most notable reformer, most well-known, is a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther um, is, is, it was the leader of the Reformation in Germany. Martin Luther, as he opens the Bible for the first time, reading the word for himself, says, no, 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 that's not possible. Not the transformation piece, but, but, the, but the re-sacrificing piece. Luther says, no, 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 Hebrews is clear that Christ dies once for all sin. Why would we re-sacrifice him again? Why do I need more forgiveness of my sins? All of the forgiveness I received was on the cross, not in some meal. But Luther would say, something does happen to the elements. Luther came up with this idea of consubstantiation. There's a conjoining with. The elements become combined with the body and blood of Christ. Kind of this supernatural, magical thing happens where it's no longer bread, it's no longer juice, but it's also not body and it's not blood. It's something new. Luther coined this term flesh bread. It's like this new substance is being created when the priest blesses the elements. This new substance as the church consumes them. They're not consuming bread, they're not consuming wine, but they're also not consuming body and blood. They're consuming this new substance. Well, where do they get this idea? Before anybody walks out, we don't believe that here, okay? Um, where do they get this idea? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Bible. Luther's a faithful man. He reads the Word of God. He reads John 6. John 6, verse 47, it'll be up here on the screen if you don't want to flip there, reads this way. This is Jesus speaking. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. The next day, Jesus, they take a boat across the sea to Capernaum. Some, some 10,000 people descend upon Capernaum. They pack out the synagogue. And Jesus begins to teach them. And he, here's part of what he teaches. John 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Are we vampires? Verse 53, here's where it gets weird, if it's not already. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So, if you are the Church of Rome, or you are Martin Luther, what do you do with that? Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What do you do with that? Well, Luther in the Church of Rome would have interpreted this literally. Luther for sure would have, right? Luther's, said, Luther's approach to Scripture was if it's, if it's said plainly, it should be interpreted plainly. Now, to me, this isn't plain. This is really weird, all right? But for Luther, Luther was like, I can understand that. I can understand this idea of eating flesh, eating blood. Like that, that's, that's plain. And so it should be interpreted literally. And so Luther approaches this literally. And so the question is, well, how do we do that? How, do, how am I going to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood? He is, his body is no longer in the tomb. It's ascended into heaven. How am I going to access that? How will I do that? Well, Luke 22, this is my body, which is given for you. <gasps> I figured it out. It's in communion. It's in the elements. Jesus is going to give us his body and give us his blood in the elements. That's how this is going to work. And so when the church of Rome approaches the table, they approach the passage of John 6, they say, how, how can I figure out how to make this work. Luther says, how can I figure out how to make this work? That's their mistake. That's their mistake. They're, they're approaching the text saying, no, I have to figure this out. And so they create this idea. They create this thing, transubstantiation. They create this thing, consubstantiation. Calvin comes along. Calvin, probably the, the, the greatest uh, theologian of the Reformation. Calvin says, well, yes, but no. Like, it's not actual literal body and literal blood. It's, it's a more spiritual thing. The actual body and blood of Christ is not localized in the elements. It's a spiritual consumption. Spiritually, we are consuming him in this kind of spiritual way. God is placing Christ into us as we receive the elements. And then along comes Zwingli. Holdrick Zwingli was the leader of the Reformation in Switzerland. And Zwingli says, you all are crazy. Crazy. Like, well, what is wrong with you? The, no, no. Zwingli comes along and says, read your Bibles. Zwingli does business with that Luke 22 passage where it says, this is my body, which is given for you. But Zwingli focuses on this piece. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance, ananasis in the Greek. Do this in ananasis of me. Do, do this in order to remember me. Do, do this in memorial of me. And so Zwingli creates the memorialist view. And every Protestant church other than the Lutherans since that day, that this is really the, the predominant view in which most Protestants hold. 
It would say, okay, it's not a literal body and blood. It's, it's this figurative language. This represents my body. This represents my blood. This represents the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do this in order to remember me. Well, that sounds better. I like that. But what do you do with John 6? What do you do with John 6? You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. What do you do with that? Well, Zwingli would say, well, keep reading. Don't stop there. Here's, if you look at the very next verse, verse 60, John 6, verse 60, it'll be here on the screen. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to this teaching of eating flesh and drinking blood? But Jesus, knowing in himself the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to the place where he was before? Right, you think this is crazy. Wait till you see me ascend into heaven. That's going to blow your mind. Verse 63 says this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. It's the Spirit gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Just a moment ago, he says, in the same passage, just, just seconds earlier, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you. You can't have eternal life without it. But then when he teaches his disciples, he says, the flesh does nothing. It's the spirit. Here's what he's saying to his disciples. He's saying, listen, it's, it's not my flesh. I don't literally mean eat my flesh and drink my blood. Remember, this is in the context. This is in the context of the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody has descended upon Capernaum saying, we want another miracle. He wants you, we want you to multiply more bread. Give us more bread. Show us another miracle. Do that bread thing again. That was awesome. Let's do that. Jesus, you don't need bread. You need me. You need me on the cross more than you need food in your belly. You need me on the cross more than you need breath in your lungs. That's what you need. You need my flesh to be nailed to the cross. You need my blood to be poured out more than you need anything in the world. Zwingli says, this is what he's saying. And he makes it plain to his disciples. What we need is the Spirit of God to reside in us by the work of the Christ on the cross. There, there's a flesh, the flesh does nothing at all. It does nothing at all. And so we here at Flourishing Grace and most other Protestant churches would hold to that view. This is a, this is a memorial, a symbol of the gospel. It's a sacrament. It contains and displays the gospel. There's, there's, no, there's no magic that's happening to the elements as we consume them. It's just bread. It's just juice. But it's unbelievably powerful. And it is a gift from God. So how do we see it here at Flourishing Grace? Well, I'm going to give you five quick things. First, why do we take communion? Well, we come to the table. We come to join with Christ. We come to join with Christ. When the church gathers, there's a special and unique presence of Christ. We see this in a number of different passages. I'll give you a few of them. Ephesians 2, 17 through 21. And he, Jesus, this is Paul talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And he, Jesus, came and he preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentile, and peace to those who are near, the Jew. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What is the household of God? It's the church. Not a building, but a people. Peter talks about this, 1 Peter chapter 5, right? We talked about that last week. As, as we are made into, transformed into living stones, we become the building material of the household of God. You, you by yourself are a stone. But when we gather, we become the household of God. When we gather, we are formed into a holy temple. This is why there's no, there's no more temples. We don't need temples. Christ has created a temple. It's right here. It's in the gathering of the saints. It's in the gathering of his followers. When we gather, there is a unique home alone, whether you're praying or reading your Bible or just working in the garage. There, there, Christ is present. He's present, but not in the same way that he is when the church gathers. When we gather, there is a unique and special presence. And so when we come to the table, which is meant to have, take place in the gathering, we see this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. Paul says, when you come together... Is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? When you come together, when the church gathers, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? Christ even tells us in Matthew, Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now that does not mean that when you and your Christian friends are hanging out together, that Christ is there in a special way. When you're gathered in my name, when we come together to worship and proclaim the gospel over our lives, when we gather in his name, when the church gathers, he is with us in a unique and special way. And when we come, when we gather, we are to partake in this table together, this event, this thing that he has given us that contains the display of the gospel. So when we gather and when we partake in communion, he is with us in a unique and special way. Now he said to his disciples in Luke 22 that he's not going to partake in this way until it's been fulfilled in the kingdom. Friends, this is crazy. When we gather and we come to the table, whether the elements are passed or we come together and we dip them into the cup, Christ is with us. He's with us. He, he is here in a unique and special way every time we gather. He stands right here by the table and he watches us and observes us taking in this unbelievable gift that he's given us with joy and gladness in his heart. He says, this is my gift to you. And someday, someday, he's going to sit at the table with you and take it with you. We come to join with Christ. We come to proclaim. Paul says to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim. We proclaim the death of Christ, right? His body, his blood that has been broken and shed for us. It's proclaiming his death. It proclaims that he has died for us. We're proclaiming this to each other. We're proclaiming this to each other. In a way, when we receive communion, we see the church in a unique way. As, as followers of Jesus get up out of their seats and they come forth and they, they take the bread and they dip in the cup, we can see the church. Visibly, we see the church. And as we see them partaking in the communion, we see people who are desperately in need for the body and blood of Christ. We see, man, Christ died for you. As I watch you take the elements, I mean, Christ died for that guy. Christ 
die for that person. These are my friends. Christ gave up his life to rescue them and redeem them. And as you see me, Christ gave up his life for me to rescue and redeem me. We see this. We see the church in a beautiful way. And we proclaim to each other that Christ has given his life for me. Now, sometimes we pass the elements, right? Zwingli actually was the first person to ever do that. No one had ever done it before. Passing the elements around the room. Before that, it was always brought to an altar where Christ is re-sacrificed, right? Zwingli says, no, no, no. Christ comes to you. We don't come to Christ. Christ comes to us in grace and mercy, and he extends himself to us. He extends that grace to you. So sometimes we pass it to give that picture to the church so that we might see the grace of Christ that comes to us. We proclaim what Christ has done for us in different ways. We come to remember. Do this in remembrance of me, right? We remember his life in his death, and we do it with him in his presence. We remember him. Luther said we come as beggars, and I would agree with Luther in that, right? We come, when we come to the table, we are declaring what I need more than I need anything in the world is Christ. I need the cross of Christ. I need his death. I need his body. I need his blood broken and poured out for me to forgive me of my sins. I need the wrath of God to be poured out on Christ so that he might absorb it and extend his righteousness to me. I need the gospel more than I need anything in the world. I come as a beggar to the table saying, realign my loves. Show me the treasure. Show me the beauty. Show me the joy that are in Christ. And that's the last piece of this. We come with joy. We come with joy. For so long, I think the church has come with sorrow and agony and pain, right? We'll, we'll dim the lights. We'll play some melodic music. We might even put a picture of Jesus on the cross up there. In every church of Rome, there's a statue of Jesus on the cross hanging above the altar. Not here. Our proclamation, all we need, all we need to proclaim what Christ has done is a cup and a piece of bread. That's all we need. And we come with joy. Y yes, yes, moved by his sacrifice, but joy knowing that in this sacrifice, he has made a way for us to rejoin him, to commune with him, and to commune with each other. That's why we call it communion, and not the Eucharist or the Mass. It is the communion with Christ that we receive because of the work on the cross. We can now join in again with him with gladness and rejoicing with our hearts. We come to the table knowing that he's here. It's an unbelievable, beautiful picture. And so that's my prayer. My prayer is I, I know that this whole series has been kind of heavy. This whole series, there's been a lot of history. This whole series, there's been a lot of re-instructing, right? Where, where we've, we've been taught something growing up by the church that we grew up in, or, and, and we've, we've never actually understood, or maybe you've just taken communion and you've never actually ever thought about what it is and what we're doing. There's been a lot of kind of re-instructing in this series, and so a lot of history, a lot of just kind of weighty stuff. But my hope is, is that in the midst of all that, what you would find as that kind of fades away is something far more meaningful than it was before. Whether that's as we preach on the Word of God, we preach on the mission of God, we preach on the community of the saints, we preach on communion. I pray that all of the history would be like, oh, that's, that's cool. But would it fade away and you would see something far more meaningful than you ever saw it before? 
But this is a gift from the hands of Christ because he loves you and he wants to reorient your loves. There is nothing in your life that you love the same as you love something else. Everything is loved at a different level of another love. You either love it more or you love it less than the next thing. Some things might be close, but you love things more than you love other things. Communion calls us to the place where we love nothing more than we, call, than we love Christ. We come as beggars. We come to proclaim. We come to rejoice. We come to treasure Him. Let's bow our heads. In a minute, we're going to receive communion together. But before we do, I want to impress upon you something. Jesus is here. He is present in this gathering with his church in a unique and special way. He's with you right now. He's with you right now. So call, call to him. Confess to him. Ask him whatever you need to ask. Tell him whatever you need to tell him. Go to him. Receive him. He's given us an unbelievable gift in this table. It's not an altar of sacrifice. It's a table for dining where we join him. Looking back at what he's done on the cross for us and seeing our need, our desperate need for that, but then looking forward to the future where we will one day sit at this table with him present and he will actually partake in these elements with us. So let's be a people who come with joy. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to charge you to stay where you are, to not come. Don't come to the Lord's Supper if you don't believe in the Lord. Unless today you would say, no, 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 no. I see my need for a Savior. I see my need for the gospel. I see that I need God to remove my sin from me and the punishment for that sin. I need to place it on Christ. I see that and I want that. More than I want breath in my lungs, I, I want that gift of grace. Well, come partake in that gift. Come taste it and touch it and feel it and see it in the gift of communion. Maybe right now in, in your life, you in some way, shape, or form have wronged someone else in this room, someone in the church. You've, you've said something or done something You've attacked the household of God, his temple, which he's created and which he loves. You've kicked a stone that is a part of the wall, that is a part of, the, that is a part of his house. It's an offense to him. If that's true, don't come until you've made that right so that you can commune with the church and you can commune with Christ in a right way. For the rest of us, let us come with joy, knowing that our Savior is here and He's given us this unbelievably beautiful gift to remember Him and to look forward to the day when we will enjoy this with Him. 
when you're ready, I want to invite you to come forward and take the bread and you can dip it in the cup. You can take it back to your seat or you can receive it right here at the table.